If you would turn in your Bibles to Job, the first chapter. I must admit to you, as I was studying this over the last several weeks, I don't know what, I can't really say for sure what was going on in my heart, but there was a little bit of sorrow. It was almost like I felt moved with sadness to go back and look at Job. (laughs) And yet there's gladness too. But for me personally, getting acquainted with Job is, is a difficult thing. If you look at what he goes through and what he experienced. And so if you'll continue to pray for me, that the Lord will help me make sense of what's on my mind. We continue from where we were last week. And if you recall, we began this servant series. The first one that we were taking up is Job. And we looked at the things that Job believed from his testimony throughout the worst time of his life. And we'll see about why that was the worst time of his life. But he is testifying what's in his heart about God, about his view of sin, about his view of man, of his own sin, his view of riches, and his own life, the things that had transpired in his own life. And so we come to Job, the first chapter. We begin reading. I want to read again, so we'll just get it back before you. The first few verses where it says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, which many commentators believe they're referring to their birthdays. And they sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus did Job continually. Job, who we are looking at, who is referred to by God at least four times as my servant. As we look at this servant series, we want to know what it was that constituted Job's serving. What was his attitude? What was his view? What was his uh, actions and his demeanor? Because I think it helps us to understand things that we should be doing in our own lives. So I don't want us to see Job as some distant, unreachable, unattainable goal. I want us to take from the book of Job things that we read about how he conducted himself And God refers to him as my servant. So as you see these days in the life of Job here, I want you to notice as we began to touch on last week, you have the description of Job and how great he was. You know, Job's living the dream. I mean, he's living a dream that none of us really even understand because he has incredible financial success and stability. And in these days, unlike today, Uh, a a sign of his prosperity was a great number of children. That was a mark of prosperity in the cultures of bygone years. As a matter of fact, it's only been in the last hundred years or so that children were looked at more of a curse than than a blessing. Our culture has changed that mindset completely for various number of reasons that we won't go into today, maybe down the road somewhere. But Job's success was his 10 children, his flocks and his herds also noted I think I mentioned this last week but I want to mention it again the 3,000 camels mean that he was a he was a great tradesman camels were known as ships of the desert and they would carry burdens camel caravans the Sahara camel caravans are were famous for being 
hundreds of camels long and carrying goods across great, great distances. This man was in, he was in the market. He wasn't just keeping everything to himself. He was trading goods and he was a, he was a billionaire. There's nobody really on the planet hardly today that can match. There might be a corporation that has this type of substance, but in terms of what his value was and what he was worth back then, I mean, he is a billionaire because he has the substance to back up what he's got. So he's living the dream. And he knows that he's living the dream. And I want you to notice again, it says that his concern was that his children might be sinning against God. He wasn't constantly proclaiming the good qualities of his children. There's nothing wrong with a brag on your children. For every negative thing we say to our children, we ought to say two positive things. I fail in that so often. But Job was realistic about the, the sins of his children and the demeanor and the, characters, uh, the character of his children because they came from him, you see? And so notice what we learn about Job, the servant of God, before tragedy comes to his life. We'll see what Job, the servant of God, did when tragedy came. And then we'll see what Job, the servant of God, was doing after the tragedy had passed. So you see the description of Job and his great riches. You notice that he was also a perfect and an upright man. That doesn't mean he was sinless. It means that he was one that tried to do the right thing and honor God. And he avoided evil. And so I want you to notice in verse 5, we want to focus in on Job's worship. This is Job, the richest man of the East, the richest man probably alive at this time. Probably eventually Job becomes a contemporary of Abraham, but at this point Job was singled out by God as the, one of the greatest men, if not the greatest man on the planet at the time. Notice Job's worship. It says that when the days of the feasting of his children were gone about, it says Job sent and sanctified them. Notice Job was not apparently invited, nor was his wife invited to the feasting of the children. And we know that the feasting in, involves some level of, and I hate to use the word partying, because it's not like they're having some kind of drunken party. But they are feasting and they are celebrating. And Job's thinking, I hope they don't get too carried away with this. And so in order to make sure that they know that he is aware of their feasting and he is aware of what might be their shortcomings, he sends and sanctifies them. He calls them to a worship service after they are done with their feasting. Now, some think this feasting may have gone on seven days in a row, like one son for each day of the week. Or it could be throughout the year as their birthdays came. I mean, who knows? But whatever this is talking about, when it was finished, Job said, I want you to come to my worship service. What a great lesson for being a servant of God. His focus was worship. You say, well, Brother Tim, how did he have time with 7,000 sheep and you know all of these oxen and all of these camels and all of this land, probably 20,000 plus acres of land that it took to cover all that. Tradesmen going here and there on those camels. How did he have time for this? Well, I believe he, I know he had some kind of staff. I don't know how many it was. I tried to do a little figuring on that. I mean, did he have 1,000 men? Did he have 500 men and women employed? He had to have a small army. You know he had to, to protect all this stuff. So you see... Job was great. He was rich. He had it all. But he was godly. And his focus, in his, even in the midst of all the success, his focus was worship. And all the success, Job did not leave off worship. So he calls the children. I want you to notice the language. It says he, it says he sent and he sanctified them. He was concerned about his kids, his children's spirituality. 
Job was not concerned about whether or not his children were children of God. He was not worried about that. He was worried about their discipleship and their spiritual walk. Because we understand the Lord's got their uh, spiritual life taken care of. See? But we as parents, and Job as a father, was concerned about their spiritual walk. So he calls them to worship. He says he sent and he sanctified them. The word sanctified means to purify or to pronounce clean. This is the same word that is used in Genesis 2 and 3 by God, where the Lord says the Lord sanctified or set apart the Sabbath day, the seventh day, Saturday. It's also the same word that's used in Exodus 13 and 2 by the Lord, where he says to sanctify, set apart the firstborn. So you see, Job was seeking to set apart, purify or clean his children. Now, again, don't be confused and think, well, he was trying to make sure they went to heaven. No, that's not what's going on here. He's worried about their conduct. You see, he's worried about did they party too much? Did they drink too much? Did they carry it too far? So he sins and he sanctifies them. He purifies them. He wants to pronounce them clean before Lord, before the Lord. He's, he's worried about their discipleship. It says also that he rose up early in the morning to do this. That has to be something deliberate, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with staying up too late and then not getting up early enough. You know, it, the verse of Scripture that comes back and the hands come out of the pages of the Word of God and slap me in the face very often that says, Woe unto them that stay up late and rise up early. That has epitomized my life. <laughs> and I feel that woe very often when I'm sitting there at the office, you know, and I'm trying to, I've drank my third cup of coffee and I'm trying to stay awake working on some case. Or try to do some something, do some studying in the Word of God, like I try to do every day. That that verse of scripture comes back and hits me often. Job is deliberate with what he does. He rises up early. It's a good thing to rise up early. We read in Brother Luke just referenced Abraham in Genesis twenty-two. It says that when God told Abraham to go and sacrifice, it says that he rose up early the next morning and he got going. You read many times that our Savior, it says that he rose up early, long time before the daylight. I tell you, that's, that just causes my heart to break because I think of how I've failed in that so many times. But I want to do better. I don't want to just go like Brother Luke said. I'm not going to despair. I'm going to trust in the promises of God that the Lord will help me to get better. How about you? So it says that he rose up early. He was deliberate. And it says that he offered. Now, the definition of the word offer, these definitions really, they get to me. Because the definition of, of offer means to ascend or to go up. So try to picture that in your mind. If you want to picture the steps out front, you know, you have to ascend to come into the church building. And, and to some degree or another, there was an ascension that took place like right there. Why? Why would they feel like, you know, why wouldn't they dig a hole and go down in a hole to worship the Lord? No, there, there was an ascension right here. And I think the, the actual offering holds the answer to that. It says that in the morning he offered, he, has, he went up. It means to go up. It's the same word that's used by Noah after he came off the ark where it says in Genesis 8 and 20 that Noah offered up sacrifices to the Lord. And notice it says that he offered burnt offerings. Even the very definition of burnt offering indicates a step or a stair to ascend. I found this very interesting. One of the definitions of burnt offerings is where we get the word holocaust from. And I thought, we think of World War II, we think of what the the terrible uh, totalitarian dictatorial government of Germany did, the Nazis did to the Jews, and we think of the Holocaust where they murdered so many Jews. Well, why is the word Holocaust used? Because it, it means to be wholly consumed by fire. A whole victim 
it goes up in flames. And of course, you understand from the Holocaust in, in the 1940s, that's referring to how they burned so many of the poor Jews in those days. The meaning here is not according to that, of course. The meaning here is that the victim is placed on the sacrifice, placed down as a sacrifice and burnt. The whole thing is burnt. And as you watch the burning of the lamb or of the sacrifice, what would it do? The smoke would ascend. It would go up. Now think about that with me, okay? Now I'm not trying to be... It's not something magical or something unrealistic. But as you're, as you're standing there watching that whole victim burn and the smoke and the ashes of that victim is going up into the sky, what do you have to do to watch that? You have to look up, you see. And when God left off fellowship with man in the Garden of Eden, He went up, see. So all of these burnt offerings, all of these things from the days of Abel even, where it says he offered the firstlings of the flock as a burnt offering. They had to go up to the altar, put the entire victim on the altar and burn it up and watch as the smoke goes up. And what do you think they're thinking? Oh God, please accept the sacrifice. Be pleased with this entire victim that's going up in smoke. And that's where we get the phrase from, by the way, to go up in smoke. As the smoke goes up from the victim, So you look up and you look up to the Lord. It's also indicative of a substitute. Why am I not laying on that altar? Why is it not my body burning there on that altar? I'm wanting God to be pleased with the sacrifice. That's what Job has in mind. And by the way, this was before the days of the Abrahamic covenant, before the days of the Mosaic law. Not long after the flood, but before or contemporary nearer the time of Abraham. So good Job in his worship He's got some idea about the same thing that Abel did when he took the firstlings of the flock and he sacrificed it and it was a burnt offering. He's got something in mind about the same thing that Noah did when Noah came off the ark and in honor of God, instead of laying himself down on that altar and burning himself up as a whole victim, which God did not require, he laid down the firstlings of the clean beasts and he sacrificed them and he watched as the smoke ascended to heaven. Can you see Job there with his children surrounded around him? He's saying, Lord, please be merciful to my children. (laughs) There was an old country song back in the 90s that Mama, don't forget to pray for me. (laughs) I always liked that song. It was a Diamond Rio song, Brother Jim, I think. And uh, Mama's praying for me. I I can remember being away from home and being in college and not just thinking about that song, but thinking about my mother and my dad back home praying for me, making intercession for me. I tell you, that's the kind of mindset that Job had. He wanted to make intercession for his children. Because he knew they came from him and they were sinners. Now, the same word is used in Micah 6 and 6. And I'll just read it to you. Very familiar verses here. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? There's the word. With calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. The prophet is saying, what does God require of me to sacrifice as a burnt offering going up before him? Something that pleases him. He says, would the Lord ask me to give my firstborn? Praise God, he doesn't. (laughs) Praise God, he provided a, a means by which the firstborn would be spared by the sacrifice of the lamb. See? And he says, Micah says, he has showed me thee, O man, what is good. Here's the verse you'll recognize. 
And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? You see, that is a sacrifice by the child of God, like a burnt offering that goes up before the Lord. Aren't you glad we're not living in the days where we still have to take the lamb and we have to kill it and drain the blood and burn the whole victim up there and let it ascend up to heaven? No, I tell you, the lamb of God has accomplished that. The son of God has accomplished that. Oh, that means so much to us, doesn't it? You see, they weren't just willy-nilly just saying, well, well, we'll worship God this way. We'll just figure out our own way to worship God. No, they understood that there needed to be a substitute for their sins. Job understood that he had to have a substitute even for the sins of his children. And so he laid down those firstlings of the flock and watched them as they burn up. Precious worship. And the Lord was pleased. He said, how do we know the Lord was pleased? Because the Lord says a few days later, have you considered my servant Job? He's happy with what Job is doing. One last thing on the burnt offering in Leviticus 1 and 3. It says that in the Levitical priesthood, they were required to do burnt offerings, which again is the ascending of the whole victim, the burning of the victim and the ascending of that smoke up to heaven where God is up in heaven. It's always good to remember that God's in heaven and we're on earth, isn't it? He's up there. He's on his throne. And yet he, can, he is still pleased by sacrifices that we make. See, Job was worshiping the Lord in the best way that he knew how. And it was a good way, a way to please the Almighty. And it was God's way. See, it wasn't just something he just dreamed up. You know, Dad, I've said this before, and I've heard Brother Chris preach about it too. But, you know, there was my way, there was somebody else's way, and then there was my dad's way. Now, the funny thing about dad's way was 99 times, maybe 100% of the time, it was always better. He had a specific way that you could sweep that was better than five other ways. He had a specific way he wanted things put up, and, that's, and it was better. His system was better. Now, you can't go in there today and see that in the old shop. It's pretty chaotic. But he knew how it worked. He knew how he wanted it. You know, it was dad, you do it dad's way. <laughs> and God has a way, you see. God has a way. And it's not something that's offensive or ugly or mean or unkind, but it's just his way. The old coaches, when I used to play, they said, boys, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> you going to play for me? You got to do it my way. <laughs> and you, otherwise, you got to hit the highway. See, Job was doing it God's way. Remember the old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. Oh, how sad and how selfish. You ever listen to the words of that song? That's one of the most selfish songs I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> All of this stuff. I don't care who I hurt. I did it my way. We don't want to do it my way. I don't want you to do it Tim's way. I don't want you to do it somebody else's way. Look to the Word of God like Job did and do it God's way. And God said, that's my servant. You You see that key? When we do it God's way, God says, I'm pleased. That's my servant. Now, Job was very specific with his sacrifices. It says that he sacrificed for the number of them all. So he picked out Specific sacrifices for them all. They had, he had ten children. And I want you to think about, you know, it doesn't say that these kids were doing anything wrong, horrible or wrong. You know, obviously they were united uh, in their family because they were having each other over. They weren't fussing and fighting like cats and dogs, like t- a lot of times siblings do. You know, the brothers wanted the sisters to come over. They were united. That's a good thing. They were very social because they were having get-togethers. They were very hospitable. And they also were very celebratory. You know, they were celebrating birthdays. They were having feasts and celebrating. We might see here in just a minute, they might have been a little too celebratory. But Job, it says, did this continually. You see, Job, before tragedy comes, the richest man on the planet probably at the time, one of the richest men that, have ever, that has ever lived, he didn't let his riches distract him from his worship. He didn't let his success distract him from discipleship. His focus 
was to worship. By the way, it means that his riches and his success did not define who he was. Are y'all with me? It wasn't his successes that defined him. It was his God that defined him. Now we read in verse 6, we're not going to spend a lot of time on verses 6 down through verse 12, but this is another scenario here where we see that Satan comes before the Lord. Uh, my personal belief on this is it was a, some kind of worship service taking place. There's so many different opinions on what this was and so many different opinions on what the sons of God are. I believe that the sons of God were people that were trying to worship the Lord. And guess what? Satan came among them. They couldn't see Satan. You know, who knows? Satan may have come among us in a worship service before. You can't see him. <laughs> But God sees him. God sees Satan no matter where he goes. And God recognizes Satan when he comes into this worship service. And Satan gives that smart aleck response. God says, where have you been? God knows where he's been. And Satan in his smart aleckness, he says, I'm going anywhere I want to go. I go to and fro on the earth. I walk up and down the earth. I do anything I want to do. If you want to know the reason why God mentions Job, that's why. Because he's responding to Satan's arrogance. Satan was having his way throughout the world at this time, doing anything he wanted to do, stirring up men again, trying to move them back towards false worship, idolatry, all these different things. And just Satan says, I'm doing whatever I want to do. I'm having the time of my life. And the Lord says, what about Job? Have you had your way with him? You see what's going on here? You know, it's not just arbitrary where the Lord just thinks, oh, I think I'll bring up Job and, and get him in some big trouble. No. God is responding to the arrogance of Satan, the aggressor, the persecutor, and he brings up one that he could not touch. See? And of course, Satan has another answer. He says, ah, Job fears God for nothing. You know, it's because you've protected him. Notice the key to understanding what Job says in this chapter is found in verse 10, where Satan says to God, haven't you made a hedge about him? You've protected everything he's got. That's the only reason he serves you. <laughs> he's saying that, that Job is a paid lover of God. He has been paid to love God. Only because of his successes, only because of what he's got. But take away that stuff and he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord says, challenge accepted. Are y'all with me? Challenge accepted. The Lord says, I'm not going to do any of that stuff to him. And God doesn't. But he's in your hands. You cannot touch his life. <laughs> so what's the only thing keeping Job alive during this situation? It's God, his redeemer, his intercessor. Now, moving along, we see where on a certain day, everything that Job has is taken away. He loses his camels. He loses his, uh, his oxen. He loses the she-asses. He loses uh, the, um, uh, the sheep. And then lastly, we read that he loses his ten children. By the way, it says that there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. <laughs> Sounds like they were partying again, getting a little too... It sounds like they did that frequently, right? And so these servants come and tell Job, these things happen. Everybody's, the stuff is destroyed, stolen, taken away, and your children have been killed by a, a tornado. Now here we go. Here's what defines the man Job, the servant of God. It says in verse 20 that Job arose. He rent his mantle. That means he ripped his jacket. You see, I can't really identify with that. Yes, you can. When you saw events going on in Washington, D.C. last week, it made you just, it just ripped your heart in two to see that. When you saw events going on back in the past weeks and months of rioting and chaos, it just rips your heart in two. And in, the, in this culture and in this society, they would literally take their robe, like me taking off my coat, and just rip it in two as a symbol of their great 
despair and contriteness. And again, it's not despair to hopelessness, but they felt so bad over what they were seeing and experiencing. You do know what that means. I hope you do. Job rips his coat, his robe in two, and he throws it on the ground. And then it says that he shaved his head, which is another symbol of great contrition, great sorrow, being moved greatly. He shaves his head, which was like making a vow. And then it says he fell down. Now watch, he rose up physically. He stood up. He ripped his coat. He took a few minutes to shave off his hair. And he falls back down on his face. And it says that he worshipped. How about that? Verse 20. He worshipped. And this is what he says in his worship. He says some of the greatest words that we should all digest and, and live and feast upon. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. And naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job says, I came here as a little, a little naked baby with nothing. I'm going to return. Even You say, well, I thought we clothed people when you put them in the grave. Their spirit does not take those clothes with them. <laughs> you know, those clothes go in the grave. When we buried my dad in his suit, it's on a body that, that's covering up a body that's dead. The spirit is gone. And it took nothing with it. The old saying, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I've seen people who were buried in their vehicles in the ground. They didn't drive it to heaven. God doesn't have that kind of sense of humor to say, oh, let them drive that old 57 Chevy into heaven. No, you go naked into heaven. And it doesn't mean embarrassing naked. It means you don't take anything with you. Job said, I didn't bring anything here. I didn't have anything when I got here. And I'm not taking anything with me when I go. God has blessed me. And don't ever be confused about what he's saying there. Because many people will say, oh, well, it says the Lord took away his children. It does not say that. Satan killed his children. It's not God taking away his children. It's not God taking away the sheep. It's not God, even though they said the fire of God fell for heaven. It wasn't the fire of God. They didn't understand the nature and character of God. God wouldn't violate his own character and do that. See, God had shrunk down and taken away the great extended hedge of protection that Job had. See, God said, and by the way, that's what Satan said. You put a hedge around him. Take that hedge away and he'll curse you. God took the hedge away and Job blessed God in worship. In all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. I can't believe we're three minutes and we're, I've got three minutes to cover the rest of this. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. I'm not going to do it. I will live to preach another day, God willing. <laughs> I hope you see, as we stop here today, I hope you see that before Job, in all of his success, before he suffered tragedy, he was a disciple of the Lord and he was worshiping. And then after, he lost everything, including his children. By the way, the thing that prompted him to get up and begin to worship was not the sheep, not the oxen, not the camels, but it was the death of his children. That's what prompted him to worship. And he didn't blame God. He didn't say, Lord, you took them from me. Lord, why, is it in, why did you do this? No, he didn't blame God with that. And by the way, we know what's going on. We know what Satan was doing. Job did not know the circumstances. Job did not know that Satan had been confronted by God. The three miserable comforters that come to comfort Job did not know what had happened. Oh, but they're going to find out. <laughs> 
in a mighty way. Job worshiped God in the midst of his great success, living the dream. Job worshiped God when all of his success was gone and he was living a nightmare. Can we see that in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. It's foolish to charge God with things that are contrary to his character. See? So, you say, well, this is bad. It gets worse. The next step is Job loses his health. Can we say that's a relevant thing to us today? Everybody's so concerned about living forever. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You're going to live forever, but it's not going to be in that natural body. <laughs> it might be coronavirus. It might be super virus that's coming down the road. It might be a common cold. It might be cancer. It might be this, that, or the other. Something's going to get you. Something's going to get you. And it may be sooner than later. But I can assure you, on the, based on the authority of the Word of God, there's no reason to despair because you will live forever. Isn't that good to know? As we pause here today, I wanted to finish this thing today, but it's just too much to say. And I've gotten too acquainted with Job. I'm enjoying myself looking into the things that have affected Job. And I'm learning so much myself from the servant Job who God said he's my servant. So we see that Job in his success, he worshiped God. And we see that Job in his losses, he worshiped God. And the next thing you're going to see, Lord willing, is that Job continued to worship God whenever he was confronted with the greatest moment of his life, which was being in the presence of God. And we'll be able to see Job's consistency in being a servant of God. We'll pause there and pick it back up next week.